How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, it's our custom to have a few moments of silent prayer because Scripture says that if we sin, that it breaks our fellowship with God and that uh, forgiveness is gained when we confess our sins. God forgives us experientially. He forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And so we always have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship, ready to study the Word. So let's bow our heads together and open in prayer. Father, we are so thankful for your grace that you have given so much to us, not because of who we are or what we've done, that we don't deserve any of it, but out of your own character, because of who you are, you have given us so much, provided us with a perfect, complete salvation, a Savior who has provided everything for us that we may freely uh, take and partake of this salvation. And you've given us so many blessings with that salvation that The Apostle Paul simply says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight that we might gain a greater understanding of our own spiritual life and spiritual walk with you and that you may make the dynamics of our spiritual life more clear to us as well as how to understand some things in the Scripture a bit more clearly. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, and actually we are not at 9.15, we're down to about verse uh, 18, and we'll start about verse 18 just to pick up, uh, or verse 17 just to pick up where we were. Hebrews 9.19, just with a little... A uh, little review. Now, we've gone through this chapter of Hebrews in what may seem to some of you excruciating detail, but it's been an extremely profitable study because we've gone back and we've looked at uh, all of the background for this chapter in the Old Testament, the the ceremonies related to the tabernacle, the furniture of the tabernacle, all of the ritual, and it has helped us to gain a greater understanding and appreciation for just what is uh, what God has done for us at the cross and what we have in Christ. And that is the part of the purpose of the writer that the writer of Hebrews had because he is addressing these Jewish believers at the in the first century, who come out of a background in the serving in the Levitical priesthood, and so they could truly appreciate all of the things that he's saying as he's connecting for them these Old Testament rituals and patterns and the observance on the special on the uh, Day of Atonement, 
and how that is all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it's important for us to understand this because it helps us focus more on what we have, uh, what we have in our in, in Jesus Christ and how He provided everything for us on the cross. And these are some things that aren't always clearly understood by people, especially when it comes to dealing with with sin and guilt and forgiveness. And that's at the very heart of this latter part of Hebrews chapter nine. Now, when we look last time. Looked at chapter this end part of chapter nine, we saw that there's a emphasis here on this whole aspect of cleansing, and I pointed out that there's this parallel between the pictures, the images that are portrayed in the worship of Israel, the ritual of Israel, the tabernacle, and the reality that we have in Jesus Christ. And so in verse 19, the writer of Hebrews said, For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, and this refers to the events in Exodus chapter 24 after the Mosaic law had been given to Moses and he read it to the people. When every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself, that is the book of the law, the, the, the covenant, the material in which it was written, the scrolls, and all the people, saying, verse 20, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. Now, as we closed out last time, I was answering the question, what is the significance of the sprinkling of the blood? And the significance is that this indicates that the nation is now set apart to the service of God. We compare that to the fact that when we trust Christ as our Savior, we are positionally set apart or positionally sanctified as believers, and this is where you get the noun, which is translated saint. We are saints because we are sanctified. We're not saints because of anything that we do or because we do some something special or we dedicate our lives to the service of God. We are saint, saints because we are the sanctified ones, and this is described by the, by the Greek noun uh, hagioi, the saints. And so this is pictured through this Old Testament ritual. And it relates to understanding that forgiveness for sin, it only occurs because the sin penalty has been paid. That's the emphasis on the blood. In Leviticus, it talks about the life is in the blood. When someone is alive, you cut them, you prick them, they bleed. When they are dead, the heart's not beating anymore, the blood's not circulating, and so the movement of blood, the absence of movement of blood is an indication of death. And so the Bible uses the imagery of blood to picture life as well as the shedding of blood to depict death. And so the sprinkling of the, with the blood indicates an identification with death. And the conclusion I came to last time, the conclusion we came to was that the law taught that all things are cleansed with blood. That is, 
death. Because sin has affected everything, everything has to be has to be cleansed. So just by way of review, four points. First of all, that the sprinkling of the blood is a picture of being cleansed positionally for every believer. Second thing, being cleansed positionally is related to our phase one justification. Just to remind you that the scriptures teach that, that the use of the word saved in three senses. We talk about the fact that we are saved when we first trust Christ as our Savior, and at that instant we are justified. That's the term Paul really uses in Romans. But he uses the word saved in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved there. And he uses a construction with a perfect participle there indicating the, a completed past action. So there saved is used to talk about your past justification. Then the word saved is used many times to refer to the present uh, Christian life. We talk about being saved from the penalty of sin when we're justified, saved from the power of sin in our day-to-day walk. And so we have passages like Philippians chapter 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't mean we work to be justified, but now that we are justified, we work out the salvation, salvation from the power of sin in our day-to-day walk uh, by means of God the Holy Spirit. And then the third stage is what we usually refer to as glorification, when we are saved from the presence of sin, we are absent from the body, we're face-to-face with the Lord. So being cleansed positionally has to do with our position in Christ related to stage one salvation justification. That is what is depicted in the tabernacle when, the, when everything is cleansed and the people are cleansed. That is a picture of positional sanctification or being positionally set apart to the service of God. But that wasn't the end of it. They, they, they didn't sprinkle everything again, but because of sin, there had to be an ongoing ritual cleansing. And this is related to the blood sacrifices that took place within the Levitical system and specifically the annual sacrifice of the Day of Atonement that just took care of those sins that occurred from the previous year to the present Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement occurred sometime approximately the end of September, early October, according to our calendar. It was the uh, first of the fall festival. So, the Day of Atonement recognized that that cleansing that occurred for the nation uh, each year. So these these things all depict for us certain principles that are true for the church age. And I pointed out last time that what we have is is really four different kinds of forgiveness that's depicted in the New Testament. Now I want to go over this again. Now this may some of you may say, okay, I'm going to pull my hair out because I understood this the first time. But I have had five or six questions in the last two weeks. And that is because when we look at what is taught in uh, uh, some of the passages I've looked at in, in Colossians, that many of you were taught some years ago that there was no forgiveness at the cross, that forgiveness occurs when you're saved and forgiveness occurs when you confess your sins, but there was no forgiveness at the cross. Some of you are going, oh, yeah, I remember that. 
Well, there's some people who just haven't quite, okay, I understand what you're saying, but I need to hear it about five more times because I haven't quite got this put together yet. So I want to rehearse it one more time, and hopefully we'll get it uh, in, as we move through the end of chapter, chapter 9. Now we come to Hebrews 9.22, and the writer of Hebrews says, And according to the law, that is, according to the Mosaic law, one may almost say all things are cleansed by blood. That's the principle we've seen so far. All things are cleansed with blood. That is, all things that are purified, ritually purified with blood. That is, the death of an animal. Now, what animals were we talking about? Now, the reason that's important is because when we get into these verses, there's going to be an allusion back to this. And so when we're back in verse 19, Moses is talking about the blood of the calves and the goats, the sacrificial animals. He just summarizes them with those two. We also have sheep, of course, and there were um, the bird offerings and other things of that nature. So we get to verse 22. We read, according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. And that is the vital principle. There has to be a death paid because that is the judicial penalty that God assigned to sin. It's not an experiential penalty of physical death. It is a legal penalty that God assigns assigned to man uh, at the instant that Adam sinned. He died spiritually separated from God. Something happened to his immaterial makeup so that his relationship with God is completely fractured and he can't understand the things of God. That's First uh, Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. And he can't have an, a relationship with God until that death problem, that separation from God is completely solved. That's one dimension of that solution is the word forgiveness. And this is the noun form, aphasis, and the noun, it's really important sometimes when you look at a language to see that there are distinctions between how verbs and nouns are used, even if they're the same word group. We have aphiemi, which is the Greek verb for forgiveness, and then we have the noun uh, to forgive. And if you just think about this, you think about a verb. What does a verb do? A verb is an action word, isn't it? And so it describes an action, and so you can see just from the, essence of a verb, that a verb is going to have a, a, a range of meaning because it's this action word, so it, it can have a broader range of meaning. But a noun, it talks about a specific thing. And so a noun is going to have a narrower range of meaning than a verb. Now, the noun, this noun that is used here in Hebrews 9.22 is used a couple of other places we'll look at in a second, and it has a... a type of meaning, a range of meaning for forgiveness that is a little bit different than the range of meaning for the verb. And we use one of the one of the ways in which this word is used is in an economic sense. That that when you forgive a debt, it means to cancel a debt completely, just wipe it out. So if somebody owes you something and you forgive the debt, it's completely removed. And that is a different idea in our minds than the idea that 
that, well, so, somebody really mistreated me or they have gossiped against, uh, about me or they have caused me harm in some way and uh, now I have to forgive them. That is a much more personal, relational idea. And often in the way we talk, we think of forgiveness in that relational sense and not in that economic or legal sense. And, and that's why we have to go back to understand that the foundational problem that man has with God is the uh, assignment of that legal penalty of spiritual death to all mankind. And so the solution has to be a solution that functions at that legal level. Theologians call this forensic. That's why they talk about forensic justification. It's legal justification. It's not just forensic isn't just a word you hear on watching CSI when you go home and turn on your, um, you know, recorders after Bible class at night or watch, watch uh, one of the other shows like that. Forensic has to do with the law and the courtroom. Now, another place where we see this word used is in Luke 4, uh, Luke 4.18. There, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, so this is a translation of this word from a passage in Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives. Now, when you release a captive, they're just, they're, the shackles are gone. They're, they're, they're free. They can just walk out of the, of the jail door, the prison door. And recovery of sight to the blind. Now there's, you either see or you don't see. You may not see well, but you either have sight or you don't have sight. Uh, and to set free those who are oppressed. And it's that same word, uh, aphasis for, forgiveness or cancellation, the complete removal of something. The word's also used in remission of sin. That's a major uh, theme that you have with Peter in both his message to the Jews in 1 Peter 2 as well as, I mean, uh, Acts 2 and Acts 3, that they can, if they turn and accept Jesus as Messiah, they will have the remission of, of sins. So we look at this key word for uh, forgiveness, and it has this idea uh, to be released, to be liberated, to be forgiven. And the uh, Arndt Gingrich, the major Greek lexicon, says that it is the act of freeing or liberating or releasing someone from captivity, the act of freeing from an obligation, that would be could be an economic obligation, uh, guilt or punishment, and it means pardon or cancellation. Now that's the idea we have when we get over here into Colossians chapter 114. And Colossians 114 is a parallel passage with what Paul says in Ephesians 1.7. And we have this structure set up here that in whom, that is in the context, it's in Christ, in whom or in him, we have as a present reality redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now, in both of these passages, you really have a classic, a, a classic construction in language called, called, a, 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 like, it's like a parenthesis and it's appositional. It means you have a word that defines another word. For example, at the beginning of a, uh, one of Paul's epistles, he may say, this is Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
you can take the phrase apostle of Jesus Christ out of the sentence and it's still going to make perfect sense because apostle equals Paul. It's just saying something in other words that help you understand what the first word means. So what we have here is a situation where redemption is explained by a phrase, the forgiveness of sins. Now, what happens is if you make a statement like there's no forgiveness at the cross, what the mistake that you're making is you're not thinking of forgiveness in that economic sense I've been talking about. You're only thinking of forgiveness as uh, in a relational sense. And in the context when that remark was made, when that was said, it was when because there were uh, a couple of pastors who were teaching that you don't need to confess your sins in order to be forgiven and that you're because you're just forgiven at the cross. And so the reaction that was stated was that, hey, you know, there's no forgiveness at the cross. It occurs either when you're saved or when you confess your sins. And it was just completely overlooked the basic concept of this word meaning cancellation. So redemption equals forgiveness here. Now, forgiveness can mean several things. It can be can- can- can mean several things. It can mean cancellation. It can be remission. It could be forgiveness. But the, the main noun here is the word redemption. And the word redemption means to pay a price for something. So what, if you've got a word that means to pay a price, and then you've got another word that appears to be an apposition to it that has four different meanings, you pick the meaning that is in the, in the range of meaning of the main noun. See what I'm saying? If redemption talks about paying a price, and one of the options for the meaning of a phasis is to cancel a debt, then that's the meaning you go with. You don't go with not having mental attitude sins towards somebody who's harmed you. You see, see what I'm saying? You choose the meaning that fits the context. And the range of meaning for forgiveness is is a financial term, so they have to equal each other. Now, once you plug in a financial idea and the cancellation of a debt to the to the meaning of a phasis, what Paul is saying in Colossians and Ephesians is that the price has been paid, which means the debt is forgiven. It's not potentially forgiven. It's not. Uh, forgiven if you trust Christ. He's talking about believers, so in him we have this. But guess what? We're going to see in Colossians 2, it's true for everybody because of what Christ did on the cross. It doesn't solve, it doesn't mean that, um, rather it doesn't mean that you're automatically saved. It just means that that objective legal penalty that had to be dealt with before God could... Um, God could save us had to be had to be paid. So we went from Colossians one and Ephesians one to Colossians chapter two, and I pointed out as we did this, I want to set this up ahead of time that we're going to see uh, some categories of forgiveness. We'll go here. First of all, we have a judicial forgiveness. This is the forgiveness directed toward God at the cross. It is that cancellation of the debt. Who did we owe the debt to? 
The debt is the legal penalty that has to be paid. We talk about this in, even in English idiom. Somebody goes to prison. Why do they go to prison? They go to prison to, because they have a debt to society that they have to pay. They have broken the law, and so they have to pay the price for, for breaking the law. It is a payment of a judicial of a judicial penalty towards the judicial system. So there is a judicial forgiveness. It's directed towards God, who's the supreme judge of the universe, and it it's, means that God cancels the debt of sin, and this is for all mankind without distinction. Second area of forgiveness that the Bible talks about is positional. This is only true for the believer. When we trust Christ, we are in Christ, and we are positionally forgiven. Now, Paul isn't talking about unbelievers in either Colossians 1 or Ephesians 1, so he's not saying in him we have forgiveness, but they don't. He's saying in him we have forgiveness because I'm talking about what we have, folks, not what they don't, they have or don't have. So let's, let's keep on target on, on the, on the subject here. So the third category is experiential forgiveness, and that's the forgiveness of the believer's ongoing sins when we confess because that breaks our fellowship with God. We can't lose our salvation because every sin's been paid for at the cross. There wasn't a single sin that God's omniscience God. He knows every sin. He doesn't go, oops, you know, I just forgot to assign that one to Jesus. And it's, oops, I didn't know you were going to do that. Oops, that's too big for my grace. He doesn't say that. He knows every sin. He was able to design a perfect salvation, a complete salvation, so that all sins paid for. So when we sin, it doesn't threaten our salvation. It breaks our fellowship with God, just like a, uh, when a child disobeys its parents. He's not kicked out of the family. He doesn't lose his family membership. He just, it just breaks that fellowship with the parents. So to restore that, we have forgiveness based on confession, 1 John 1, 9. And then fourth, we have a personal forgiveness towards one another based on what God has done for us, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. And this is how we show that we love one another as Christ loved us, John uh, chapter 13, verses 32 and 33. So we have forgiveness that's directed towards God, where the justice of God cancels the debt of sin. This is emphasized in Colossians 1.14 and Ephesians 1.7, as I've already pointed out. And it's also seen in Colossians 2:13 and 14. Now, this is not an easy passage to translate because it has several participles in it in, in Greek. And when you see these translators uh, bring it over into English, they have done really what translators should do. They have left it a little bit vague. A participle is, is a word in English that has an ing on the end. But these, these words can have various shades of meaning which can be determined by context. When I teach Greek to uh, pastors, this is one of the things that I, I give them a list of different, different categories, different things that a participle can mean. And I say, you just, you just fill in the blank and you say, does it make sense to say uh, this was the manner in which it was done or because he did this? And you just do multiple choice. You plug in 
a, a, a word or two that will clarify the meaning, and if it works, it's, it's possible. If it doesn't work, then you know you can dismiss it, and sometimes you end up it could be between one or two of them, and then you just have to work with it until it makes sense. And so we have this word, you being dead. See that I-N-G? There's a participle. And when, being dead, that's, that's the action of their death is before the main verb, which is he made alive together with him. So you being dead or when you were dead. See, that would be called a temporal adverbial participle. When you were dead... He made you alive. You were dead first, and then he made you alive together with him. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. In Ephesians 2, 1, he says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's spiritual death. You were in that state of spiritual death, separation from God. And when you were spiritually dead, he made you alive together with him. That's the main idea here because that's the main verb. Everything else that's said in these two verses relates to that main idea that he made us alive together with him. When we were dead in our tracks spiritually with nothing we could bring to God, he made us alive to him. Now he's going to explain how he was able to do that. And he does it with these uh, next two participles that are translated the same way, having forgiven and having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. But that's pretty nebulous and vague, isn't it? But we can do a lot better, and we can make it a little more precise. Remember, the main verb is he has made us alive together with him, and that is, in the in the Greek, that's called an aorist tense. It's a simple past tense. He has made us alive uh, together with him. So the when you were happens at this, uh, previous to that. And then we have that next, let me back, back up here, we have that next participle, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now let me give you an idea of what I do when I'm translating a passage. I can say he made us alive together in the manner of forgive, forgiving you as trespasses. Does that make sense? No, it really doesn't make sense. He made us, he made you alive together with him because he forgave you of all trespasses. Yeah, that makes sense. You could say he made us alive together when he forgave you all the trespasses. Now, that could make sense. The trouble is when you continue to work through the verse, you find out that the forgiveness of the trespasses is related to wiping out the handwriting of requirements or the debt that was against us, and that occurs when he nails it to the cross. So he doesn't make us alive when he nailed it to the cross, does he? He made us alive when we believe in him, but the cancellation of the the debt and the forgiveness of the trespasses occurred at the cross according to the, the next verse. So we can't use he made us alive when he forgave us of the trespasses. The best way to understand this is he made us alive together with him because he canceled and that Verb tense, I know this is getting technical on the grammar, but that verb tense is an aorist participle tense with an aorist main verb. Now, the rule of grammar is there's a couple of exceptions, but generally it, the, the t- 
timing of that participle is dependent on the timing of the verb. If the, an aorist participle comes before the action of the verb, so if it's a past tense verb, then the action of the participle has to precede that action. That means he has to, the cancellation of the trespasses has to precede or come before his making us alive together with him. Now, because it's an adverbial participle, it has various meanings, and cause is the only one that works. He made us alive together with him because he had already canceled the legal guilt of our trespasses. That's the only thing that really makes sense. He had already done it because he had already canceled it and solved the objective problem. Now he can solve the, the personal, individual uh, problem. Now, how do we understand the, the next clause, which is the beginning of the next verse? Well, if you plug in a different options, the only one that really works is he made us alive together, or you were born again because he had already canceled the debt, the trespasses, and when did he do that? When he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us or the certificate of debt. I like that. That's, that's the idea of expiation that's in the, uh, in, the, in, in the King James. So he made us alive together with him because he canceled the, the guilt of our sin. It's wiped out. When he wiped out the handwriting of requirements or when he canceled the, the certificate of debt that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has completely lifted that out of the way. That's the idea. He has taken it out of the way. He has completely lifted it or removed it out of the way. And he did it how? By nailing it to the cross. Or you can maybe take that as temporal when he nailed it to the cross. See, either one would work. By nailing it to the cross or when he nailed it to the cross. You might even say he completely lifted it out of the way because he nailed it to the cross. See, that way, any of those three could work and there's no contradiction with any other passage in scripture. So that's how you work through these options. And there's, so what we're told here is that our regeneration, we're born again because something had already happened in the past that wiped out, canceled our Debt, that legal debt is removed. But, you know, what the problem is, is we're still spiritually dead, aren't we? That just canceled the judicial problem toward God. But everybody's still born spiritually dead and lacking righteousness. And that only gets solved when you trust Jesus as your Savior. When you trust, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, at that instant what happens is that God credits to your account the perfect righteousness of Christ. He looks at you now as righteous and not unrighteous, and he declares you to be just. That's the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So you're justified when you believe in Jesus, and he regenerates you. He makes you alive together with him. So now you're alive and you're justified so that when you die, you can go to heaven. You, you don't just go to heaven because he paid the penalty, because that doesn't change you. It just changed God's orientation to us, which is included in those, those words that the Scripture uses, propitiation, which is not a word you use too often anymore, and reconciliation. God was in Christ, Second Corinthians 5, 
19 says he was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And then 1 John 2, uh, 2 says that, uh, that God, Christ propitiate, was a propitiation of the Father. He satisfied that judicial demand. So those things all work together, the redemption, the paying of the price, the forgiveness, which cancels the debt, the propitiation, which satisfies the, the justice of the Father, and the reconciliation, which changes his orientation to us. Because his justice has been satisfied, the price has been paid. And so because of that cancellation of the debt called expiation, see, you know, these are great theological words that, that have just been flushed away because we have such a, such an anemic education today that you buy any of the new translations, they try to, they dumb down the language because they've got to, these Bibles have to be able to be read by somebody who's got a third-grade reading level or a fifth-grade reading level or a seventh-grade reading level, and they, they just can't handle these words. And so it's, it's making the teaching of the Word, we're just becoming impoverished spiritually because we don't have the vocabulary anymore to explain and understand these phenomenal things that God did for us at the cross. So that takes us through Colossians 2, and it gets us back to uh, the passage we're looking at in Hebrews chapter uh, 9, verse 22, and that is that we have this, uh, we have this forgiveness. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, when does that forgiveness occur? When the blood shed? Yeah, that's what that passage said. Same thing that we saw back in uh, verse 12 that he, Christ entered, when he ascended to heaven, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained or having found, having completed, having obtained eternal redemption. So all this happened at the cross. Now we get into the next verse, verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary, now that, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that translation's a little fuzzy. Therefore, whenever we see a therefore, we need to see what it's there for. It is a conclusion, and that is a conclusion based upon the things that the writer has said already, that he is going to come to a conclusion based on all the principles he's laid out related to Christ's work, his, his perfect cleansing, and light of the temporal work, the temporal cleansing that had to be accomplished week after week after week, year after year after year by the human Levitical priests. So he says, therefore, it was necessary. And he uses this Greek word, anake, which was a word that goes back and has a, a strong usage from, the, from classical Greek times, going back and read uh, Aristotle on logic. And this is a word that was used to, to talk about the fact that when you have, a, have, have the truth of certain propositions understood, that they necessarily imply the truth of something else. Uh, in 
uh, sentential logic, you just might have the statement, if A, then B. If A is true, then it naturally and necessarily follows that B would be true. And so that's what he is indicating here. The word ananke indicates a necessary compulsion or a logical necessity, something that must take place because of the way reality is. And reality is structured the way it is by the omniscient mind of God. He knew everything, every little detail, every piece of minutia that you can possibly come up with and beyond, God knew and comprehended simultaneously when he created everything. And he created everything in such a way that that reality could handle the violent shock that came to it when Adam sinned. And and that sin didn't just affect Adam personally in his fall and his spiritual death, but it reverberated throughout all of creation, and it changed uh, changed creation, changed laws of physics, it changed uh, botanical structure. The ground was going to bring forth now thorns and thistles. It changes the... Uh, structure of animals so that animals that were not meat eaters before are going to become meat eaters, and that entails a, a slightly different gastrointestinal system. All of these things are going to happen. There is a, uh, a tremor in the force almost uh, that occurs, this earthquake of earthquake proportions, seismic proportions, that reverberates throughout all, all of reality. And so... What, what the, I mean, the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that in light of the necessity of cleansing for sin and that blood must be shed for full redemption and remission of sin, it was necessary that certain things happen. There was no other way to deal with the sin problem. It was of, of internal, logical, spiritual necessity because of the way God made things. So he says, therefore, it was necessary. And then we have a funny little construction in the Greek that really doesn't show up in the English. And I've tried to highlight this in the slide by inserting an asterisk where the first word would occur in the Greek. And then I highlighted the the but in yellow to indicate the second word. Because you have this phrase, this way of, of writing in Greek, that if you're going to say, if this on the one hand... But this, on the other hand, and you do this by inserting these these little little words that we call particles in there, and the men and the de. Whenever you see a men preceding a clause, and then a de in the next clause, this should be translated on the one hand, but then on the other hand. So he says, therefore, it was necessary on the one hand. For the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. These what? Well, why do we go back? That's why I went back to the sacrifices mentioned uh, back in, in verse 19, the blood of calves and goats, these sacrifices. It was, therefore, on the one hand, for the copies of these things in the heavens to be cleansed with these sacrifices, but on the other hand... The heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these sacrifices. So he's contrasting two different categories of sacrifices. One at the earthly level that is just a shadow of what has to take place at the heavenly 
level. So we have to understand this as on the one hand, but on the other hand. Now, the next key word to look at is that word copies. Therefore, it was necessary on the one hand for the copies of the things in the heavens. And this is a Greek word, hupa, uh, hupadigmata, which is really a word that is used more frequently in uh, the Koine Greek of the New Testament than it was in the, in the, um, in the Old Testament period or in classical Greek times. And classical Greek preferred a different form of the word, the paradigmata. See, hupa, para, those are interchangeable prefixes. And paradigmata is where we get our English word paradigm, a paradigm. A paradigm is a pattern. A paradigm is a, is a model for something that you can then take and and uh, uh, apply ac- across the board. So uh, it's the same idea in hupadigmata as in paradigmata. It means a sample or an example, a pattern, or a copy. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of these things or the patterns of these things, indicating that this is not the ultimate reality, but there is a prototype or an archetype that is in the heavens. So the copy of the things that are in heaven. Now, we see this word hupadigmata used a couple of other times in Hebrews. It's not used uh, very much in the New Testament. There's only six times that the word occurs in the New Testament, and um, three of them are in Hebrews, the passage we're looking at, as well as Hebrews 4.11 and Hebrews 8.5. In Hebrews 4.11, it's translated as an example. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, talking about the millennial kingdom, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. In other words, don't be a copycat with the Jews in the Old Testament who griped and complained to God when they're going through through the wilderness. We don't want to have any copycat sins here. So don't follow their example. And then Hebrews 8.5 talks about the priests who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, again talking about the, the furniture in the, in the tabernacle. And it uses, also uses another word, shadow, and it's important. We'll come back and talk about that word in, uh, in just a minute as we go through this. So these are the ways in which this word is used. It's not a strong technical word, but it's an important word to understand that we've got a, uh, a pattern a, a, a copy on earth, and a copy is a, a duplicate of an original, and that original is in heaven. Tuesday night we talked about the Ark of the Covenant in heaven in the temple of God. That's the original. The Ark of the Covenant that Moses built is the copy. That's the hupadigmata. Now verse 23 goes on to say that it was necessary on the one hand for the copies of the things in the heavens, that is the archetype, archetypical furniture, prototype furniture of the tabernacle, to be cleansed. Therefore, it's necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed. Now, what's being cleansed is the copies. And the copies of the earthly uh, tabernacle, the earthly altar, the earthly uh, altar of incense, the earthly uh, uh, Ark of the Covenant. They had to be cleansed with these sacrifices. But on the, and the word there for cleanse is the 
uh, word katharizo, which is the word for cleansing or purification. Same word that's used in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's, a, it's an infinitive of purpose there. So here it's also an infinitive of purpose that the copies of things in the heavens need to be cleansed. That's his point. Now, the rest of the verse we can handle pretty easily is that, on the other hand, the heavenly things, if it's necessary for the earthly things to be cleansed with the blood of goats and calves, what don't you think the heavenly things also have to be cleansed? And that's what he says. On the other hand, the heavenly things themselves, emphasis in themselves, have to be cleansed, but it needs a better sacrifice than these sacrifices. So let me give you a corrected translation. Therefore, it was necessary, because of the way things are and the way God made reality, on the one hand, for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified, to be cleansed, to be decontaminated from sin. But on the other hand, the things in the heavens to be cleansed, see, that, that it picks up that same verb. It doesn't repeat it. That's called an ellipsis, but it's, 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 the idea is there. But on the other hand, it's necessary that the things in the heavens need to be cleansed with better sacrifices than these, the bulls and the goats. Now, that introduces a doctrine called typology. Now, typology is part of the study of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the uh, academic word for interpretation. From the Greek word Hermes, the god of the, the messenger god of the Greek pantheon. In hermeneutics, he was the messenger. He's the one who interpreted the gods, who explained the gods. So hermeneutics has to do with the uh, science of and the art of interpretation. And so in the science of interpretation, you have specific rules that you follow in order to understand things. Well, part of this is just understanding how God uses certain symbols and what we call types. I remember when I was... When I was growing up in church and I'd hear the pastor talk about a type of Christ, I thought that was one word, T-Y-P-E-A-C-H-R-I-S-T, type of Christ, you know, just one word. And it wasn't for a long time that I came to understand what that meant because we don't use the word type in everyday language the way it's used in this theological sense, which comes from the, uh, from the Greek. And there's three words that are used in talking about this. And the first is the word we just mentioned, the hupadigmata, meaning a sample or example or a pattern. And I've talked about the fact that God has designed reality in such a way and history in such a way that you see repeated patterns down through history. And what this does for us is, is as you read the Bible and you begin to see these patterns, you realize that, that God has not structured this. These things didn't just happen by chance but that God is, has woven these things together in order to set up certain patterns and certain pictures from the time of the creation and Adam's fall all the way up to the coming of Jesus Christ and his going to the cross. They're designed, all these pictures in the Old Testament are designed to portray something about what Jesus 
was going to do on the cross. Now, does that mean that everybody who read this in the Old Testament understood what these things meant when they were, when they were taking a lamb in to be sacrificed on the Passover? I think that in some of the stronger types like that, they did understand that. You have John the Baptist saying when he saw Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They clearly understood that sacrificial connection. But other connections weren't as clear to them in the Old Testament, but they're made clear once they see the final product. All of a sudden it's like, yeah, that fits. That fits the patterns. So you have some patterns that are real specific and some patterns that are just a little broader and a little more nebulous. So I like to just use the word patterns. And when it's real precise, then we have the word type, or it comes from the Greek word tupos, that indicates a form or a likeness, uh, a stamp or the impression that something makes on um, on on something on on something else. For example, when you take put an impression in soft wax, a seal, then that is the idea there. The seal itself would be called the the original form, and then it has a reflection in the in the wax. Uh, that it makes it, that, that you press it into. And the word type, though, when it's used in the scripture, is more often used in a, in a general sense and not a technical sense. Theology, since the completion of the canon, theologians have come along taking this word and made it a technical word, and we have to be careful. I remember reading a commentary by A.W. Pink not long before I went to seminary, back around 1973, and it was recommended to me by somebody who I trusted, I didn't trust them ever again, uh, called Gleanings in Genesis. And everything that shows up in Genesis is a type of something. I mean, every little detail. And that is just the abuse of typology. And uh, and so we have to be careful with that. And there are many, many writers who do that and they abuse that. We have to be, be careful. I, I think there's others who've gone to the other extreme and says there's no types whatsoever. And, and, and in seminary, you discovered there's huge debates about this. But I think it's clear that there are these patterns. Some are, are clearly stated, Christ, our Passover, as we saw last time with the Passover meal. That is a clear statement that the Passover is a picture of Jesus Christ. We can clearly say the Passover is a type of Christ. The Lamb is a type of Christ. There are other things that we can say are a type of Christ. But there are some things, like Joseph's coat of many colors, I don't think we can say that. Scripture doesn't make those kinds of applications. third word that's used is this word, skia, that's translated shade in some passages, shadow, overshadowing. We might translate it foreshadowing, a foreshadowing, just, just a, a pattern that foreshadows some. Now, all three of these words are used in Hebrews 8.5. That talking about the priests in the Old Testament, they serve a copy, a hupadegma, serve a copy and shadow, skia, and shadow of the heavenly things. That's the earthly furniture in the tabernacle. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect a tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all the things according to the pattern, the tupas, the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But see, tupas here isn't used in that kind of a technical sense. It's, it's, it's basically a synonym 
for Ischia and Hupodegma. So they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, but those things are going to foreshadow something about Jesus Christ, and they're built according to a pattern, which meant that God showed Moses a blueprint. He showed him the actual prototypes in heaven so that Moses could remember that, and what he built on earth was pattern was on the basis of that pattern of the heavenly uh, prototypes. Now we have another place where where uh, this word, uh, for example, hupodegma is used in Colossians, uh, or shadow is used rather in Colossians two sixteen and seventeen. So let no one judge you in food or in drink. See, this is relationship to the Old Testament law and the problem of Judaizers that came in and said, "Okay, oh, you can't drink this, you can't eat that." Uh, you still have to observe all the festivals of the, of the Mosaic Law. Paul says, don't let anyone judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a what? A shadow of things to come. They picture something that's going to, God's going to do in the future. But the substance is of Christ. That ultimately everything points to Jesus Christ. So you have a lot of different passages that use, for example, the word tupas, the nail marks in his hand. Let me, uh, I want to skip ahead to this slide. Tupas then originally carried the idea of the result of a blow or what gives a blow or impression. From that developed, uh, from that idea developed the thought of a mark or a mold, a stamp, a cast, a form, a model, an outline, or sketch. So what I have pictured there is a stamp that makes an impression on the soft wax. The soft wax is the copy. That's the type. And in a technical sense, one would also say that the, the, the original is the antitype. Now, the confusing thing is in Greek, they use both type and antitype to refer to both, both that which was stamped and that which stamped, that which is the mold and that which goes into the mold. And they, they just reverse. And we see an example of that in Hebrews. That's why, that's why I'm bringing this out. So, um, but technically, the way we usually talk about it, the type is the, the shadow, and the antitype is what it pictures. Now, this is just to show you that the word type often indicates something that is not technical. The nail marks in Jesus' hand, uh, that's a type. The nail types, the idols, it's used for idols of uh, the images that uh, were made to worship. The tabernacle was made according to the tupas, the type, the pattern of Moses. That's not a technical sense. Uh, he wrote a letter as follows of this kind or to this effect. Uh, Adam was a pattern of the one to come. That could be a, and probably is, a technical sense. Um, other passages, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of, uh, of teaching that I brought to you, and that was uh, uh, Galatians uh, 6. No, that's not Galatians. I forget the book right now. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, these things occurred as examples. Uh, Join with others in following my examples, Philippians 3, 17. Uh, so you became a model or example to all the believers, 1 Thessalonians 7. We did this in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow, 2 Thessalonians 3, 9. See, all of these just use it in a very general sense, very similar to... Skia um, Hupadegma. First uh, Corinthians ten eleven says these things happened. It uses a different form of the word. These things happened to them as examples, or they happened to them typically. It's an adverbial form. 
So these words indicate just these various patterns that are set indicate the sovereignty of God. Hupadegma is almost always translated example. That's how it makes sense. And so the picture that we see here is that Christ had to cleanse the heavenly altar, which is a picture of the propitiation, the satisfaction of the justice of God and the payment of the penalty due to the Supreme Court of Heaven. The only death that could qualify was the death of a perfect Savior. And so verse 24 says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. This is the heavenly dwelling place of God. He didn't enter just a mere copy of the true one, which is like the priests in the tabernacle or temple, but he entered into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God for us, that is, on our behalf as our priest. And then he says, for, and the word there for copy here is, it wasn't a mere copy of the true one, it's anti-tupos, which is just a copy or Example, it's almost identical to Tupas in this context. And then the last, the next last verse says, nor was it that he would offer himself often. As the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. See, the high priest has to do it annually, but Jesus just had to enter once because he comes with his death, which is unique. And so the writer can then say in verse 26, otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. That idea there is since the beginning of the world. But now, once at the consummation, that is the culmination of the ages, indicating that everything in the past is pointed to that event at the cross, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested or he appeared in the incarnation to put away sin. Again, we have this word, a fake athetasis, which means to annul, notice, again, wiping it out at the cross, not when you believe, but at the cross. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Boy, that answers a lot of problems, and it gives us confidence to know that no matter what sin we commit or we've committed, doesn't mean it's a license to sin. It means that God in his grace has already dealt with every sin so that that isn't the issue. The issue is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to come to a greater clarification of all that you have done for us, all that you've provided for us, that we have a full payment for sin. Sin isn't the issue. The issue is our walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. Sin is our forward, I mean, our spiritual life is dependent on our forward momentum and sin is dealt with by simply confessing, and you forgive us and cleanse us. So the focus is positive. Move forward, and don't let the sin hold you back. Father, challenge us with the things we've studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.